I'm Mitch McCracken, and this is Memphis Music Interview. Memphis Music History, told from the inside. My guest today is a man who did a lot of fine work at a studio that is now unheard of. But in the 70s, a lot of Memphis musicians played there. I'm talking about Shoe Productions, and my friend Andy Black was there for many of those projects. Andy is doing a documentary that tells the shoe story. Well, I say new, but you've been working on that project for a while now. Yes, Mitch, uh, and, and, it, and it was new when I started. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, um, it's, it's a project that I started, and, and it, it really happened because I was, I was working on a documentary for Royal Studios uh, with some folks, and uh, Nathan and myself, uh, you know, worked a couple of years on that project and and uh and then after that i i also had already done a stacks documentary and then i was at sun studios and we were working on another documentary and and these are uh documentaries that i did the audio on it was, i wasn't a producer or director or anything like that when i was talking to matt i believe his name was at sun studios we were standing around kind of killing a little bit of time and at, we got into the me telling him stories about shoe and and the fact that uh, Jim Stewart, the ST of Stax, and Bobby Manuel uh, coming down to our studio and us building another stu- a second studio. And he's like, "Man, I can't believe that I I thought I knew everything about the muse, Memphis music in the '70s. And I've never heard these stories." And that got me thinking, so then I went home and Googled it, and I got nothing. And and uh, at that point, I realized that we were all getting left out of history because when Jim and Bobby came over there, Stacks had just folded, and they wanted to keep it real low-key. And so we did, and we kept such a low-key that nobody really knew what we were doing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. And... And so we were getting left out of history. So I took it upon myself to produce and direct a, a documentary on shoe, and, uh, and and to tell the shoe story. And and so that's that's what I've been working on now for like over the last four years. And it's one of those things I thought I'd just do a little short documentary. And well, you know, needless to say, it's an hour and a half long now. But. Uh, I did interview a lot of people that were involved over there. And, of course, uh, Wayne Crook and Warren Wagner, the founders of Shoe, had come to me back in those days when they were first starting and asked if I'd be interested in joining them, and I did. And, uh, you know, then we wound That was started out in, the, in Warren's garage. And, uh, you know, people came over, Tommy, Kathy, you know, just all kind of people came over to record. And it was kind of like the early Stacks days in Jim Stewart's garage. And and so uh, we wound up because uh, we were working on a, a – we decided we needed to do jingles to pay for our habit of wanting to record. <laughs> And so we did, and our first jingle was uh, the Fairgrounds Amusement Park, and Jimmy Jamison sang it. Wow. And, and, and uh, it, you know, we didn't have reverb out there in the garage, so uh, Wayne and Warren and Jimmy 
went into the bathroom in the middle of the night because it had a nice echo to it. And, and, and but but it happened to be next to Warren's bedroom where his wife was asleep because she works during the day. Uh oh. <laughs> and and Jimmy kind of sang loud. You know, he's got a big voice. Yeah, he <laughs> so, does. He sure and, does. So, at any rate, that was the last project done at the garage, and mm. uh, we looked for another place, and we wound up, uh, believe it or not, on the corner of Hollywood and Broad. In Memphis, oh. Tennessee. Really? Yes. We found this building that was perfect. It had 18 inches of packed concrete walls. You didn't. You could have set a bomb off outside, and we wouldn't have heard it. And uh, so it became ideal place to have. And then we had extra, extra uh, footage in there that we weren't using. And uh, at one point. Uh, Bobby it was looking around for a place to go to to keep recording after stacks folded, and he kind of knew Wayne from high school, and so they got together, and he saw the place and loved it and and talked to Jim Stewart and said, man, I think i got a place. And, and Jim came down there, and as he came down the steps going down into the studio, he just he had visions of stacks building, and so uh, they decided to build a their studio there and we all jumped in and built a second studio then we had two studios and 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 the greatest thing about it was is before that we were kind of rock and roll and pop and then when they came down there we got exposed to the best of r&b music you know the guys from stacks and bobby's and jimmy's produ- uh, jim's production and uh, it just it opened the doors, and, and we just did all kind of projects. I mean, we did a lot of people that people don't realize, and uh, you know, we had uh, Elvin Bishop, and, and of course, of course, Steve Cropper and Duck Dunn, and all those guys. But we also had like Doctor John, Paul Butterfield. Uh, wow! You know, of course, uh, the first album we cut on our side was uh, Keith Sykes. And he did his first album, and he came to us, and and uh, we were flabbergasted, but it, it turned out great. And 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 then we had uh, we recorded Chris Bell down there, and oh. he, and uh, he came over to see what it, the sound would sound like with his music, and he cut "I Am the Cosmos" down there, and now it's a, got a cult following all over the world. Yeah, sure does. And and so it's just, you know, all these things, it's like, hey, people, we did a lot of stuff down there. Jimmy Jameson, LaVon Helm, Rick Dees, we cut Disco Duck that I think last count I know of was, it was like over 7 million records sold. Wow. And, uh, and then I teamed with Jimmy Griffin from Bread, and we formed a writing team, uh, and, and, just, and I recorded him down there, and... And Joyce Cobb, I produced and recorded Joyce Cobb, and and got her a record deal, and she wound up getting on the Billboard's, uh, you know, top fifty, and, uh, and and so you know there was just a lot of things like that that happened, and 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 it got to where a lot of musicians and singers would would come down to shoe just to hang out because we were always doing something. And so, you know, uh, we had Rick Christian, who was, in my opinion, is one of the greatest songwriters ever come through Memphis. And he wrote a song called I Don't Need You, and Mercury put it out. And 
you know, the ballad is hard to break a ballad, but uh, after after we released it, then the next thing I know, we get a call where Kenny Rogers had already cut it, and that went to number one in the in the nation, and uh, it so that was that was a big big seller, and and uh, Rick B's coming down there, and uh, it, and. Did you ever know Gary Guthrie when he was at FM 100? You know, Gary was the one that instigated instigated my the uh, my radios picking up FM 100. Right, right, yeah. And he came to me and Shu uh-huh. to uh, to write a song that went with some of these lyric ideas he had written down. Uh huh. And and so I I wound up producing the my radios picking up FM 100 for FM 100. And Gary Guthrie was one of the writers, right? And uh, and and I guess you could say he was the executive producer of it. Mm-hmm. And uh, I brought in uh, Pat Taylor uh, and Suzanne Jerome, right, to sing it. Mm-hmm. And originally, I wanted Suzanne Jerome to sing it because Bobby Manuel was cutting an album on her at the time for mm-hmm. Mercury Records. Uh-huh. And and I just loved the way she sang, and uh, but I was told by Mercury that because their album was coming out as an solo artist, that she couldn't sing lead on it. She she could sing harmonies, but she couldn't sing lead. So, and this is an interesting story here. So I called up Pat Taylor to come and sing it, and and I got Pat and I got Suzanne to come in and sing harmonies with him. Uh huh. And I went out there and sang harmonies too. While we were out there on the floor, I'm telling you, you could see the sparks flying between those two. <laughs> they, they were literally falling in love before my eyes. So it was, it was just kind of a. It became really a a learning place, a place where musicians came and 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 uh, Dave Smith is like you know. I, I don't know where I'd be today if I hadn't have gotten my chops together down in shoe. Yeah, man, and I tell you, he is great. Oh, he's one of the best. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, and we formed a little rhythm section of people that were like Gene Nunez, and and we had different drummers. We had Steve Mergen, and and uh, we had one drummer, uh, oh, Blair Cunningham. And Blair was a great drummer, and and he went on to he, play, he started playing with Paul McCartney. Whoa! And and uh, when they came when McCartney came to Memphis at the stadium, he was he was the drummer, and uh, and so you know everybody you know so many people I can't even count them all who went on to you know to do bigger and better things. Well, I, I assume in in uh, the time that you've been working on the documentary, you've reached out to some of these people and got interviews with them? Oh, well, see, that was the first thing I, I, I knew that I needed to do that first, to do uh-huh. to do interviews, uh, because we're all getting older, and there's people that are passing away, and, it's, and so it's like I had to get that in the can. And I, I interviewed... Oh, uh, over 30 interviews, uh, different people, and each one's an hour and a half to two hours long. 
And of course, you know, I'm going, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then when it was all after it was all in the can, then it's like, okay, now I got to go back and listen to all that and sort it out. So the project kept growing and growing. And as people uh, heard about it, that I was working on it, everybody was coming forward. I got a story. I got a shoe story, you know. And and so I just tried to accommodate everybody I had time for. But, you know, and during all this time, I was still working in the video production business, and I had to make a living. So it kind of right. kind of became second nature, and that's part of the reason why it's so long and strung out over a period of time. But that, and also, if you look at a lot of documentaries, like the one I did for Stax and Royal Studios, and there, you know, there must be 60, 70 people involved in it, production, uh, you know, the people who get permission to use and do the research and, and do the editing and, uh, you know, all that organizing. And, and my project is there's three people. <laughs> me, me, my son, Nathan, who shot it, and Linda, my wife, you know, and that's that's the team right there. And Wow, uh, family project. Yes, exactly. It was a family project. <laughs> wow. And I decided that I didn't want to, like, get somebody to come in and do a voiceover on it and talk about it and, and then show people. I wanted everybody to tell their own story. And so this is a documentary that the story is told by the people who experienced it. And and I was able to put it all together where it made sense from one person to the other. And uh and so that's that's kind of uh that was my goal and my other goal is to get it on PBS um uh, and some other uh media so that when somebody uh, text or Google's shoe productions or shoe studios, they'll get something. Not like I did. I got nothing. And, right. And so hopefully this will put us in history, and that's my goal. Wow, that's great, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> so can you go into some of the people that you interviewed that you're using in in the documentary? Oh yeah. Well, of course, uh, the founders Wayne and Wayne Crook and Warren Wagner I had to interview them, and they, we had a uh, financial backer that was uh, Alan Perlman, and uh, I got uh, Jimmy Jamison. We shot a, a scene at the end uh, when I had everybody together, and I, I grouped all the musicians—not all of them, but a rhythm section of the same people that I used with Joyce and Rick Christian. And I did a session. And when I went down to the old studio, it's exactly like it was 40 years ago. Whoa. And, uh, I mean, I even, even the carpet and the flooring was the same. And I looked down and there's a stain. I go, Oh, I remember when Bobby Manuel kicked his coffee (laughs) over right there. (laughs) <laughs> so when I say it's the same, it's the same. And so I decided that that would be the perfect place to do my interviews. So I tried to get most all the interviews done with some different places of the studio in the background. And so in the process of being there and doing all all those interviews, and uh, the owner of the place now is, is John Ward, and he uh, he owns Echo Records. And they they do production out of there now, 
and it's a lot of R and B, mostly R and B, and and he was kind enough to donate the, the facility for us to do these interviews, and and I talked to the engineer that's down there uh, now, uh, Till Palmer, and um, asking what the possibilities would be for us to me to put together a rhythm section, come down there and cut. So I picked about five songs that we've done in the past there, and uh, and I got uh, the rhythm section together, and I got a film crew of three different film crews there, and uh, we cut, and we had, you know, singers were Becky Russell, myself, and Joyce Cobb, Jimmy Jameson, and uh, Lanny McMillan came and played sax. Swain Schaefer played organ. Uh, Gene Nunez played guitar. Wayne Crook played guitar. Steve Potts played drums. And uh, and Dave, and of course, I can't leave out Dave Smith on bass. And we played five songs, and everybody had just the greatest time. And it really comes off on the on the film. Uh, and also, I can't leave out world-famous Lester Snell, who was one of the main yeah. keyboard players over at Stax. And he, he was there on keyboard, on electric piano. So we, we had a great time. And, and, and I now have some video footage to, to go with all this. Uh, because naturally, one of the hardest things about doing this documentary is coming up with any kind of video footage or or even still pictures because we were all, I mean, to our, in our own mind, we were like creating, you know, and trying to do masterpieces down there. And, and the last thing anybody wanted was somebody with a camera snapping away because the cameras back then weren't efficient and you had to have flash and nobody wanted that. And so yeah. it, it yeah. was hard to, to get the stuff I needed for the, for the documentary. And, when we cut that session, well, that was, I think we did that on a Thursday or a Wednesday and in, uh, in July, or no, it was August, that's right, and uh, Jimmy had a gig that weekend out, in, out west, and that was the last we saw of him because Jimmy passed away that Saturday, and yeah. so... Uh, wow. uh, I've, I've got the last footage of him singing, and and it's it it kind of it's sad in a in a way, you know, it, it, it in a lot of ways. But it it's good that I gave him. He he's got a presence in this because he was a presence in when we were actually doing it to begin with. So I wanted him to be a part of this session somehow, and I came up with the idea is I pulled one of the songs that we wrote together, and I pulled his voice off of it. And then uh, we I, we played back his voice singing, and the band played the music to it, to his voice. Oh, wow. And so I, I've got, his, in all those five songs, he's singing one of them. And, and so, you know, and I used some still pictures for him instead of, because I didn't have any footage. Uh, obviously right so it, it was just a lot of, of things that were clicking and and it was meant to be the more i worked on it yeah. the more i realized this meant this needed to happen 
Uh, do, do you think you'll be able to stop working on it? <laughs> well, I can tell you, I've got an archive of so many pictures that are grateful that I'm so grateful for. That really, uh, nice. Everybody was so nice about hunting in their drawers and their closets and finding me trying to find me pictures because I was putting the word out to everywhere. It's like, have you got any pictures? In the studio, and then it became. I wanted them in the studio, but then it came. I'm not getting much of anything, so I'll take a picture of them anywhere. I'd hate to leave somebody out, but you know, uh, like I said, uh, you know, there's a lot of the radiance. We did a, a record on the radiance, and and it was called uh, "I Need a Vacation," and. Uh, uh-huh. And, and and that got some airplay until the record company went out of business. Yeah, uh, <laughs> Tony Joe White, you know, even Willie Mitchell cut over there. So you know, there there was a, a lot of interviews, lots of interviews, and 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 I went down memory lane. And the thing that was that really shocked me about it all was that everybody kind of you know I'd say, well. You know, I uh, they'd say I, I don't know if I can give you anything. I don't even remember what, hardly, but what went on back there. I said, I'll start asking questions, and you'll see what happens. And they did. Right. Next thing I know, I'm doing two hour interviews. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you opened the memory flood. Yeah, and everybody was like, God, I can't believe I'm remembering all this, and. And we, and we did things different down there, and uh, you know, I did. I, I was working with a jazz trio, which was Tony Thomas and Tom Leonardo and Sam Shoop, and we cut uh-huh. like two jazz albums, and and it wasn't getting much interest, and they were kind of bummed out about it, and so they decided, hell, we're going to do something really different, and they told me to keep my mind open and just anything any idea i had and we wound up cutting a record called dog police and it was a whimsical i guess would be the word you know uh funny song so you know that that was a fluke and and we were try we were scared to try things different uh you know also you can uh, you can go on YouTube and you can put in Dog Police song and you'll get it. And the last count, it was over over a million hits. Wow! By the kids that are out nowadays, you know, your millennials are going. This is great, you know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And they don't know where it's coming from, but had uh, one guy at the FedEx Forum who was a young kid come by. Nathan, Nathan was working there. And, he said, "Man, have you? There, there's a thing going around where uh, on the on the internet. Have you ever seen Dog Police?" <laughs> and he goes, "Yeah, my dad did that." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and they're like, "No way!" <laughs> but it, it, you know, so you never know what's going to happen over time. You know, what's going to come back around. Yeah, I bet you that made Nathan feel really good about his dad. <laughs> Well, yeah, and you know Nathan's gone on. He's in. He's deeply embedded into music now too. So yeah, we didn't have very much money, and what we did have, we worked real hard for, and we needed a bigger console because the console we had been cutting some of the stuff on at the beginning 
was a little four-channel console that Warren Wagner built out of parts from scratch. Wow. And and so then he, he's like, he's, his confidence was, yeah, I built a board. It sounds great, and but it's too small. And so let's build another one. <laughs> so we invested our money because we could get a lot more if we did it ourselves. And mm -hmm. we built our own recording board. It was a full uh, 32-channel board. Uh, and we even etched the circuit boards that go in it and put every little component on each circuit board in the whole console. Whoa. And that's, uh, needless to say, that's when I learned to solder real good. <laughs> 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 Which, by the way, I hate doing nowadays. So that that was an unusual thing that we did. And, of course, Disco Duck was unusual, and the Dog Police was unusual. And then we had... Uh, you know, Rick Christian, Joyce Cobb, the Radians, Rob Junkless. You know, we cut him down there for a pretty good while. And, and uh, you know, just everybody, all the musicians, you know, heard about us and everybody wanted to come down. And we, we, we wound up, Carl Marsh, you know, one of the greatest conductors in Memphis ever. Uh, he was in the symphony back then. But he was a great piano player, and and him and I worked together. And and Carl now he he does uh, symphony sessions over in uh, Abbey Roads in London. Uh, wow! He, 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 he's a he's a heavyweight, and uh, and he 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 came he, he came all the way back just so I could interview him because that's how dedicated everybody has been and and wanted to tell their stories. Wow, that's uh, that's amazing. I think that's the thing about all this is is I just want to get it in the search engines and and hopefully get it on PBS. When Bobby Manuel and Jim Stewart came down there, uh, they they had a company that's called Black Diamond Productions, and they called their studio Daily Planet. Right. And so uh, she was. There was a long hall that came down when you came in the entrance, and and when you got down to the bottom of the steps, you go to the left, and you went into the shoe side, and you go to the right, and you go into Bobby and Jim's side. And we wound up. They liked some of the sounds that was coming from the shoe side, and so we wound up. You know, there's no telling. It'd be whoever booked the studio first, and and we were, you know using both studios for everybody and and so it just it turned out real real good and we had the uh the influence of r&b and and they had the influence of our pop and it kind of started melding together and we all felt like a family and i think that's the one thing i got out of all these interviews is everybody said it just felt like a family and when you went down the shoe you felt like you were going home and and that's just the way the vibes were. Man, that that is so good, that, and and so important that that when the people came there, that they were that comfortable. Yeah, it, it, it totally relaxed everybody, and and we didn't have any windows, so you know, and I, like I said, the walls were so thick, so you didn't hear if it was raining. You, there was no distractions. Oh wow! We did literally. Thousands and thousands of jingles, and we used the jingles to hone our skills 
And we, so we, unlike uh, some of the jingle companies that were around, like uh, Pepper Tanner, uh, you know, they would crank them out. You know, I mean, and but we would take each jingle and do it like a song. We would write it like a, a little short one-minute song or a 30-second song. And so we were able to try things to see what worked and what didn't work. And uh, and we used the jingles as our lab for that. Well, that's a good idea. That's great. So are there any jingles that I might recognize? Well, when Cecil's was together, we did Cecil's spots. Um, Come to Tennessee, we're playing your song. Uh, I did that with, uh, you know, Dolly Parton and and Lee Greenwood and, and, a, lot, and a lot of different artists. That's a song for you in Tennessee. Good times and harmony. So won't you come and join us? Come on and sing along. Tennessee, we're playing your song. Come to Tennessee, we're playing your song. We all free Tennessee vacation guide. Call 1-800-754-2600. Uh, Dixie Carter, we, they, they even came and wanted Dixie Carter to be a, a part of it. And, and she was singing cabaret. So I had to go from R&B, like a B.B. A King kind of opening, into... Her singing cabaret. Now that was weird. <laughs> <laughs> I bet. I wanted to tell you that I, I, I really am proud of you and and admire you for how much you have helped local musicians uh, in their times of need and helping with fundraisers and, and and helping people get by challenging moments in their life. And I think you've done just an incredible job of that. Well, thank you so much, Andy, and sitting down and talking to me about about uh, all of these projects. Shoe, a Memphis music legacy, is available for rent or purchase on their Facebook page. That's Shoe, a Memphis music legacy. Now, make sure you're with me next week when one of the Memphis boys will be my guest. American Studios keyboard player Bobby Wood will be with us on Memphis Music Interview. Memphis Music History Told from the Inside, a Get Kraken production. I'm Mitch McCracken, and I hope to see you then.